with that intention, I'm now probably like six minutes in and I've said nothing about what we're going to talk about today. We're going to continue uh, this Ten Commandments sermon series. I'm really excited about this. I really enjoy it because I think the Ten Commandments are powerful. And they're powerful multiple ways. They're powerful in our culture, which feels like we talk about a lot. Like they're a political tool and like people are always arguing about whether they should be here, whether they should be there, whether they should be, you know, posted up on, you know, the Capitol steps or whether they shouldn't be. And then there's this, all this, all this noise about them. And yet, in the scriptures, in the Bible, in the story of the Bible, they're powerful because they speak to who God is, and they speak to God's vision for us. And yet, in the midst of that, because of how culturally prominent the Ten Commandments are, it feels like we kind of lose the theological or the significance they have spiritually to our lives and become like a political tool more than they are a spiritual vision uh, of God and of his people. Uh, we talked about last week the fact that these commandments are for God's people. They come after God has saved. Uh, the kind of wording that we use is that God didn't give commandments and then save, but rather he saved and then he gave commandments. These aren't for everyone. They're, we're not so that we can say, hey, here's the gauge of whether you've been saved or not. This is how you get saved by following the Ten Commandments. But rather, uh, they are the way of life God calls the people that he saved to. And so that, that's how we live our lives. We look at the idea of following God, and this kind of starts the vision of going, hey, if you've been saved, and this is how you want to live your life, this is the vision that God has for you. And it starts last week with not having anything besides God, not, not having any gods besides God, I mean. That we wouldn't place anything in priority over him, but that we would truly uh, make everything in our lives subservient to God, that, that we would follow him passionately. Uh, and lovingly, if you want more info on that, go and check out the sermon from last week. However, this week, moving on to the second um, commandment, it's the commandment about idolatry. And uh, that's tricky, because what the heck is idolatry? Uh, this is one of those really fun subjects that in the Bible uh, is brought up a lot. And it's one of those cultural disconnects that we don't necessarily understand and we can't relate to. Uh, and yet it's brought up a lot, so much so that one of the Ten Commandments is, is focused on this idea of don't make any graven images, don't make for yourself any idols. And the thing is, in the list of the Ten Commandments, we really connect to the ones that we relate to culturally. It's like, don't murder somebody. And it's like, yeah, dude, don't murder somebody. Right? It's like, don't steal. Yeah, dude, really don't steal. Right? Like, we get that vibe. We understand that because we relate to it. But then you get something like this where it's like, hey, don't make for yourself an image or a graven image. And then it becomes like, man, what does that even mean? It's really hard to even grasp what that looks like. And here's the thing. Historically, what this idea was is that people would make statues and they varied in size. They could either be like a handheld statue, something that kind of fit in your hand, maybe went in your home, set up somewhere. Or they could be rather large statues, uh, whether it was like kind of the, the size of a person or whether it was like a statue that was very imposing and bigger than a person. <laughs> and they were meant to embody or represent a god. And people would come to those figures and they would go, oh, you know, I, I, I'm going to pray to this statue. I'm going to try and, and win over this statue. If I do something good, I may collect something as evidence that I did something good. I may return to that statue, provide the evidence of my good work to that statue. Because all of a sudden that's getting weird there because it's not like God is everywhere and seeing everything, but now God is embodied in this statue, so I'm bringing the evidence of my good to the statue where I believe God is. 
uh, or my God, if it's a different God than, than the Hebrew God, and I'm presenting it to, to that statue and saying, here's the evidence of my good work, and, and try to win over some type of favor from that God so that maybe they would, uh, that God would change the circumstances of your life. Maybe it would provide rain if you were low on crops, or maybe um, if there was some type of issue in your family, or somebody was sick, or something like that, right? So there was this kind of plea to these ideas of these little statues, and and that was very common in Moses' day, in the day when this particularly was written. It was a very common practice. Not just a few people did it, everyone did it. It was more than likely something that the Hebrew people did too. This didn't come out of left field to be like, oh yeah, God's telling us not to do something that we already don't do, right? It, back when, um, in, in a story that precedes this, in Abraham's life, uh, or uh, particularly, sorry, I'm actually a little bit, little bit lost on the timeline here. Laban was whose uncle? Jacob? Okay, so Jacob, yeah, because it was Rachel was his wife. Ooh, there we go. Um, so when Jacob runs from uh, his uncle Laban's or his uncle-in-law Laban's house, uh, he flees, and it says that Rachel takes with her their household gods. And so this is something that even within the family of Abraham was pretty common. So the whole culture, everyone around partook in this. And God in, steps in and, and in this moment says, hey, I don't want you to do that anymore. I don't want you to make images. I don't want you to hold images, hold them as, as divine and worship them. I don't want you to do any of that, right? And he, he comes in and we'll, we'll read it right now. Let's take a look at it and just actually read it together so you can get an image of what's going on here. Exodus 24 through 6 says, do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. That's kind of covering the whole spectrum of creation, right? Like, hey, don't make anything that's like birds. Don't make anything that's like creatures on the land. And don't make anything that's like creatures in the sea. All right. Do not bow in worship to them. Do not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay, so what's happening here? I want you to pause real quick and set aside, not permanently, but for a moment, this talk about judging fathers and, and kids, and we're going to get to that. I want you to just take a deep breath. Don't let that distract you. But first, let's focus on this idea of idolatry. He's saying, don't worship them. Don't make images. And you may look at this idea and kind of be like, uh, yeah, like I said, this isn't really hard. I'm not trying to, I'm not taking anything and, and bowing down to it in my house. But here's what's really happening, is, is he's trying to communicate don't make something that's going to lead your heart to, to run to it. Don't create something that your heart is going to run to for security. Now, for these people particularly, there was this idea of carving something out of a little piece of stone or wood. And that's how they created something that their heart was going to run to for security in times of fear, in times of concern. And yet, we look at that and go, oh, that's kind of ridiculous. But in our lives, we create the same very thing. We create things in our mind. We create stories in our minds, stories in our hearts. We create narratives of how other people may have offended us before we did anything in retaliation to make ourselves feel a little bit better, and then our heart runs to that in the midst of the feelings of guilt and shame. It's just one little example. We're creating things, maybe not with our hands, but with our minds and with our hearts, that our heart then runs to and says, man, in the moments of my insecurity, in the moments of my fear, in the moments of my shame, in the moments of my anger, I'm going to run to this thing. I'm going to try to get my hope out of it. And that's really what idolatry is, right? If we're going to take a look at a basic definition, 
Come on, iPad, wake up. Um, idolatry is what your heart turns to other than God. That's a pretty, pretty simple definition, but it's what your heart turns to other than God. And, and in this commandment, he's saying, don't make those things. Don't make them and kind of put yourself in a position to run to something that's not me. Now, here's the thing. That feels very broad. That's a broad definition. So let's narrow it in. A lot of you guys may know the definition from the late, great Timothy Keller, uh, who passed away just a couple of weeks ago, who said this about idolatry, kind of teasing out in a more detailed way. That an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning then I'll know I have value, then I'll feel significant. Again, something that our heart's turning to for what? For meaning, for value, for significance. We're creating things that our heart turns to to try and satisfy the aches of our heart, what we're longing for, what we want, what we hope we become. That's idolatry. Now, we can list through those things really, really easily, but the thing is some of us also probably can't. If I'm being honest, that's still probably pretty challenging for us to apply to our lives. If I told you right now, like, what do you look to for meaning and significance? You'd be like, I don't know. Right? It, it'd actually be probably pretty challenging for you. So I want to go ahead and dive a little bit deeper into this idea. And I want to provide two things that I think I see oftentimes. Uh, and this is not a full, full list, but I think it's important for us to think about. Because if we look at idolatry as something that we, we're looking at to bring significance, to bring meaning, to bring value, I think there's a couple of ways this happens. I think the first thing that I would say is that if we're going to apply this to our lives, we need to look at whatever we place our hope in. Whatever you place your hope in is the thing that I would say starts to verge on idolatry. We oftentimes can look and say, hey, as a person, right, I want to be approved of, I want to look good. So I walk an old lady across the street. This is a kind of old example, but I don't know if people are walking old people across streets anymore. But, uh, and overall, we would look and go, man, that's really helpful, right? Society is better when young people are helping old people across the street. Everyone would agree with that. However, right, if the inner workings of our heart is going, man, I feel guilty about doing X, Y, and Z, and I want to exude myself, I want to release myself from that guilt and shame by doing something positive. So I take the old lady, the old man's hand, and I say, I can help you across the street. And then I get to the other side, and I breathe a sigh of relief that goes, man, okay, I feel better about myself now. All of a sudden, the hope of who you see yourself as, the hope of who you want to be, doesn't rest in God. It rests in walking an old lady across the street. And all of a sudden, it gets a little tricky. And that's what I'm saying. This is complicated. This is challenging. Because when we start to look at our lives, we start to realize that we do this with a lot of stuff. How we raise our kids, how, how, our grade point average in school, whether we, whether we own a house or whether we don't. Let, let, let me be very honest with you. About seven years ago, that was where me and my wife were. We'd gotten married, and we uh, had lived in an apartment, a low-income apartment, if I may add, uh, in San Marcos, Texas. And uh, it, it, it was fine but it was also evidently a low-income apartment. Uh, and it had all the characteristics of such, and I quite enjoyed it, to be quite honest. But my wife was like, we really need to start thinking about our living situation here. So I was like, all right. So we moved in with my dad for a couple of months, or maybe more than that, and we thought we're going to really try and focus on, on, on getting our finances ready to buy a house. That was back when you could buy a house. I don't know if you remember these days, but you could, like, move into your parents' house and set aside some money and be like, oh, you know what, we're going to buy a house. You didn't have to be like a millionaire. 
So we, we moved in with my dad, and, uh, and, and we stayed there for a couple months. And we were like, okay, I think, we're, I think we're ready. I think our finances are in order. This was really important, an important move for us because our families couldn't help. We had friends everywhere, uh, all over the place, that were just like buying houses left and right. Like it was nothing. And admittedly, this was back when you could buy a house, but it was still pretty crazy that they were just out here buying houses. And then I'd be like, man, how'd you get into this house, bro? And they'd be like, my dad lent me like 50 grand. And I was like, what? I think if I collected all of my aunts and uncles and put them in one room and was like, can we collectively put together 50 grand for me to buy a house? They'd be like, bro, I can't put together like $50 for you to buy a house right now. Like, what are you talking about? At the time, there was not very much financial stability. And so it was crazy to me that I kept looking and they kept being like, yeah, my, my dad just lent me all this money. And me and my wife were like, well, we, we don't have that option. So we're going to have to move in and we're going to have to get our finances ready. We finally, we go, we buy a house. But as we kept talking about this idea of a house, I started realizing it wasn't just the idea of getting out of this apartment or, or having a yard or whatever. There was something going on, particularly in my wife's heart, that was going, man, I see all of the people that I went to, went to school with. I see the people that I... I consider friends, and they're all making these jumps in life, right? They're all buying houses. They're all kind of getting stable. They're all setting up for the future. And something in her went, I need to be doing that. I need to be doing that. She felt like she was falling behind. As a result of falling behind, she felt like she was a little bit less than them. She wasn't as accomplished as them. She wasn't as X, Y, and Z. Insert probably what maybe your own experiences. And that sort of comparison kind of the, the thief of joy, as they call it, was, was kind of getting into her crawl, and she was like, we really need to buy a house. And to be quite honest, we just were financially really not ready to buy a house. Uh, it, it left us a little bit house broke for a while. Even back in the days when you could buy a house, we still were house broke, if that gives you some insight as to how broke we were. Um, and it was funny, because the moment we got into the house, she's all excited. I'm excited, too. I'm a little bit nervous about our financial stability, but I'm excited. And then within like two or three weeks, I see my wife kind of being around the house, kind of like almost throwing shade at the like the side, you know, like shade at, what is it called? The little, uh, the molding on the, you know, she'd just be looking at anything around the house and kind of just randomly be like, say it again? Baseboards, there we go, there we go. Um, and she'd kind of just be looking and kind of be like, <laughs> and I'm like, what's wrong? And she'd be like, you know, it's just not all it's cracked up to be. But that itch in her was like, I'd do anything for that thing. I'll, I'll move in with my father-in-law. And let me be honest, he's, he's back there. She didn't want to do that, really. Um, she was willing to do anything because she thought if I could just have that thing, it would provide what I need in order to feel good about myself. And then she went and she pursued it. And then she ended up being in the spot where she was like, no, that's not right. That was my bad. That, that didn't work. But she placed her hope in that thing. Now, here's the thing. A lot of us maybe can relate to a story like that. Maybe for you, it's a job. It's... Like I said, it's a degree, it's uh, a house, it's a car, it's a relationship, um, whatever the, the case is. We place our hope in that thing. We want to derive some type of value, meaning from it. But I will also say that Tim Keller wrote that specific quote, like I think eight years ago, and the world has changed a lot in those eight years. And there's particularly another area that I, I see idolatry at work a lot in, and it's not just where you place your hope. I think it's also this. I think it's where you place your pride where you place your pride. For a lot of us, we think of idolatry in the context of, of really meaning, significance. We take something like Tim Keller's idea and we go, okay, here's my, uh, my spiritual need that I'm trying to get from this is meaning, significance, or approval of some kind. And then we try and go find that in our lives. 
And yet one of the things culturally that I've seen come up really big in the past probably four to five years is this idea of what we place our pride in. I think, is that, I think it's, it's further down the line if you, if you keep going, bro. And if this isn't working, then oh well. Um, if you look through the scriptures, this is actually really prominent in the Bible as well. Particularly, one of the New Testament examples is in Acts 19, where in Acts 19, Paul is in a city called Ephesus, and there is a temple in Ephesus to a goddess named Artemis. And that goddess is losing followers because Paul is preaching the gospel. And as a result, they're burning idols and they're burning scrolls with her prayers in the streets. And it says that that amounts to 50,000 pieces of silver. That's a lot of money. I just said that my, my people can come up with that to buy me a house. So that's a lot of money, all right? Now, here's the thing. When we look at the, the response of the, of the idol makers and of the followers, I want you to look at what they say. They say, not only do we run a risk that our businesses may be discredited because they're not selling as many idols, and this is referencing Paul and his preaching of the gospel, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis uh, may be despised and her magnificence come to the verge of ruin, the very one all of Asia and the world worship. Take a look at it and think through that for a second. When we talk about Acts 19, if you've talked about it, you've probably heard it through the context of money, and money is a significance, and that's true. But there's also a sort of pride in the, in the goddess Artemis. You gotta remember, this was a, a goddess that represented the city of Ephesus, really. And so a lot of these guys that were working in Ephesus had been devoted to Artemis their entire lives. It, wasn't, it was more than just their religion, it was their culture, it was their way of life. And as a result, they had deep pride in it. So much so that when Paul's beginning to preach the gospel, he's starting to draw people away, and their concern is not just with their money, but also with the fact that the, the thing they take pride in, their culture from their city, what defines them is going to be despised, it's going to lose influence, it's going to be considered second best, and that makes them angry. I think... We may not even know it, but so often this idea of idolatry is so present in our lives. I think of a couple of ways where this particularly impacts the, the world that we live in. Is like politically this impacts us really, really, really bad. Because the way we live in the world we live in at the moment, right, you take this idea of saying I'm conservative or I'm liberal, and then you go, man, this is the thing that will bring the right way of life to the world we live in to my country, to my city, to my state. And then from there it becomes, I despise the other side because if the other side grows at all, my side decreases. And if my side decreases, then, then I'm angry, I'm bitter, I'm frustrated. And the thing is, this is sneaky because oftentimes things like political, political beliefs, they come from places like our, our culture, our family. They're not just ideas that we come and derive from a Bible or that we get from a platform. We really end up getting them from when we're being raised by people that say, this is how we should live. This is the way things should work. This is who I voted for. This is who X, Y, and Z. And that begins to influence us. It's not just a political agenda at that point. It's how we grew up. It's where we grew up. It's the people that we listen to, the people that we admire, people that we love that have said, this is important. Right, that's what's happening oftentimes when we say, hey, this is something that I'm clinging to and I want this thing and if the other side increases, this side decreases and it makes me angry and it makes me bitter. Boom, right, idolatry, what we place our pride in. 
But this doesn't just extend to this. It extends to, a, I mean, there are people that are obsessed with sports, and there's rivalries. And if there's, like, one side that does well, if A&M does well and the Longhorns decrease because A&M does well, then everyone's bitter, right? Like, it's, it happens all the time. And you have to take a look at it and, and understand, man, this is, this is something that I may think is good, but it's just a, a consuming me, and I'm placing my pride in it now. One of the things that I think about here often that I have been guilty of in my life is even the idea of like theological knowledge, or not just theological knowledge, but theological doctrines and beliefs. When I was a young man, uh, back in those 13 years ago when I came to faith, uh, I'm not ashamed to say it, but I know that the connotation of it is a little, a little tricky in our current world. Uh, I would say that I got really drawn into the theological world of Calvinism. And, uh, and while I think there's a lot of valuable things in there as well still, um, it drew me into a point where I aggressively said, this is the truth. And then I started to defend that truth. And anytime someone, and, and if you don't know what Calvinism is, just as a quick side note, it's just a vision or, or a way to read the Bible in how we're saved. And then oftentimes it's, a, it's contrasted with another idea that's called Arminianism. And so these oftentimes are at battle. And then I would go, and every time I would meet someone that had a different belief, I would come and I would argue my theological point for the Calvinism and, and then try to smash everything else. And I would come, become a little bit bitter because if someone was like preaching, right, at a church that I visited, let's say, and they, they preached Arminianism, this idea of this is how you get saved, then I would kind of be sitting in the chair and I'd be like, I'm going to go talk to that pastor when he's done, right? Because I thought I need, to go, I need to go try to defend and prove to him that this one's actually better. Why? Because if he's preaching that and all these people are saved, in my mind I start going, he's preaching a false teaching, so I need to go and try to make it right. And I'm doing that pretty much over and over again. And I'm a nerd. So when I say I was deep, I was deep. I was reading like the esoteric stuff where it's like, bro, no one's even heard of that guy. And I'm like, exactly. I'm smarter than you. Right? So that's how I was walking around, right? And I'm doing this over and over and over again. I'm doing this over and over and over again until one day I'm working at, uh, at the well the church that planted this church, and I'm like the small group's pastor there at the time. And I visit a small group, and in that small group, there was another man. And to be quite honest, I would tell you his name, but I don't even remember it. Um, and, and this man looked at me, and he was like, yeah, man, I heard you talking to so-and-so the other day. That's legit. I really like, and he was referencing a defense of the idea of Calvinism. And he goes, okay, man, like, like yeah, brother, you know, we got we to gotta preach the truth, we have to defend the truth, and we have to make sure that people know the truth. And I looked at him and I realized, man, this brother in this group, before I got there, the leaders had said, there's one individual that's quite divisive in our group. And he didn't tell me who it was. But within about an hour, I knew who it was. It was the very same guy that looked at me and said, we're together. And my heart became so overwhelmed with grief and I, I looked at him and I said, man, to be honest, bro, like we probably need to align ourselves more with the individuals in this room that are making disciples and individual, individuals in this room that agree with us theologically. Because the ones that agree theologically and don't make a disciple of Jesus, no matter what they believe, and as long as they believe the truth about who he is, those are our brothers and sisters, not the ones that agree with us about everything. I, I was talking to myself as much as I was talking to him because I was literally looking at him and was like, man, we're the same guy right now, bro. Um, my heart was mourned in that moment. I realized what I took pride in was not Jesus. What I took pride in was not the love and grace of God applied to my life. What I took pride in was this theological or doctrine that I said, this is right, and I know it, and they don't. 
So it became my banner of sorts. And here's the thing, in, in your life, you have maybe some things like that as well. Anytime we look at someone and go, they're less and I'm more because of this, I would say that's an idol. That's an idol. And it, it comes out really aggressively in politics, but it comes out in all kinds of areas. And idolatry is often what we put our pride in. And so those are two things that are going on. But here's what I want you to see, that oftentimes what's happening here is that idolatry leads to a couple of things. The first thing is that it leads to hurting other people, and it leads to hurting ourselves. Idolatry leads to hurting people because we say, okay, I'm, I'm looking at maybe an individual and I'm treating them lesser than. Why? Because I feel pride and I want to kind of have my thing be above their thing. But then it also hurts ourselves because we oftentimes look at things that have no business trying to give us what we're looking for, and then we're just pursuing those things. You're my wife looking at the house and the baseboards being like, this isn't all it's cracked up to me. But what if I told you that despite the incredible definition by Tim Keller about idolatry, uh, that's actually not even what this is talking about. So we're going to start over because that is idolatry. Those things are right. And when we're talking about idolatry, we have to talk about them. However, what we're talking about in the second commandment is not that. What do I mean? What I mean by that is this, that the second commandment here is not talking about having other gods as idols. In other words, saying, hey, the, these things are now ultimate things. That's actually covered in the first commandment. The first commandment says, don't have any other gods besides me. That says, hey, don't have any gods, don't replace any of the non-ultimate things and put them in the ultimate place. No, what God is actually telling his people here in, uh, in the second commandment is don't make any images of me. And that's important, and it's actually powerful. Oftentimes we think of the golden calf as an example of Moses coming down the mountain and going, you're worshiping something other than God, without actually knowing that the golden calf that they built was supposed to be Yahweh, their God. The bitterness and anger didn't come from you're worshiping other gods, but you have a distorted vision of your God. Don't make any graven images that represent me. And this also has to do with the culture. I, I, I have a quote here that I think was really helpful for me in understanding. It's by uh, a man named John H. Walton. If you want to go look him up, you can. He has some wild interpretations of things, and it's a lot of fun to read him. Just buckle up while you're doing it, all right? Um, and in his uh, background commentary article talking about this verse, he says, the prohibition, that is the prohibition against idolatry, is more concerned with how idols are employed. And here the issue is power. Images of deity in the ancient Near East were where the deity became present in a special way, to the extent that the, the, the cult or religious statue became the god. As a result of this linkage, spells, incantations, and other magical acts would be performed on the image in order to threaten, bind, or compel the deity. What does that mean? It means that oftentimes what would happen is they would make the God that they were worshiping into a specific image. They would use that thing in order to try and make him do what they thought he should do, and all of a sudden they would feel bitter if it didn't happen, or they would feel entitled if it did happen. And here's the thing. I think the, the third element of idolatry that this really speaks to us about we have first what you place your hope in, what you place your pride in, but I think the other element of idolatry that we have to really consider from this verse 
is there's the idolatry of who you demand God to be. Who do you demand God to be? Because the issue in the ancient world was not just that they were going to go worship other gods, but they were going to create a god in the image of themselves, who views the world the way they view the world, who does what they think would, would be best. And there would be some type of magical act in order to say, hey, here's the thing. I need you to do this. I need you to do that. This is how my life should look. If I was God, this is what life would be like, and that's what you should be doing. And I'm here to do all the things I need to do in order to demand or to compel you to giving me that which I think is best for me. Now, again, we look and go, I don't do spells, but you sure do act right. I think if there was a thing I, I think most of us put our magical, magical confidence in, it's much less how we do a spell, it's much more how we perform in the world. That we perform oftentimes and go, because I've done this right, because I've done that right, I demand that you give me this and that you give me that. I've come to church like eight weeks in a row. I haven't missed. I've gone to Bible study. I read my Bible every day. I'm, I act right. And again, we're taken right back to last week where the Ten Commandments no longer become a way of life for those who were saved but now they're a way of life for those who can demand something from God. And idolatry no longer is what we put our hope in or what we put our pride in, but the idolatry of our hearts is who we demand God to be. You should be like this, and if you're not, you're not who I want you to be, and therefore I'm angry at you. I'm bitter against you. This is the warning of this passage. It's not just, hey, you're gonna have pride, you're gonna have put your hope in things. It's you're gonna try to make me into you, and I'm not you. My ways are higher than your ways. My vision for your life is greater than your vision for your life. The longings of your heart are not the longings of my heart. And the longings of your heart for your life are not the longings of my heart for your life. The warning here is you're going to have the temptation to look at God and go, if I was you, this is what it would look like. And the moment that doesn't happen your vision of God becomes so incredibly frustrated, bitter, angry, and the warning is don't go, don't go down that path because that one only leaves you angry and that one only exchanges a God who's so little and who's so simple because oftentimes we're pretty little and we're pretty simple. That's so little and so simple and you're gonna exchange that for a God that's glorious and compassionate and loving. And that's not a God you want to follow. That's also not a God that's going to give you what your heart actually longs for. That's a God who's probably going to put you in really difficult situations, whether it's in bitterness, whether it's in getting exactly what you wanted. Because sometimes exactly what you wanted leaves you looking at the baseboards and going, it's not what it cracked up to be. And so what's the solution here? What's the solution in the midst of all of this stuff, right, we have what we place our hope in, we have what we place our pride in, and then we have the idolatry of who we demand God to be. And I think the, the actual idea is pretty simple, to be quite honest. It's not crazy. It can be challenging, but it's not crazy. Uh, what's the solution? Is just to worship God. The solution is worship God. That's precisely why uh, in the rest of the verse, it goes on to say, verses 5 and 6, 
and the rest of his commandments say, Do not bow and worship to them. Do not serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, tricky verse, right? Because what's happening here is that he's going Rather than having this vision of who you think God is, let me introduce God myself to you, that I am a jealous God who will visit punishment on those where, for, as a family who turn away from me and hate me, but also extend mercy and faithful, compassionate love to thousands of generations. So there's already a bit of a comparison going on where he's saying, here is uh, my, my anger, but the thing that can vastly outweigh my anger is my incredible love. So he's painting a God who's compassionate, who's loving, and who's faithful, even in the midst of our failures. However, he uses a really passionate, a really incredible word just before this that encapsulates this idea. He says, I'm a jealous God. Now, right away, I want to ask you, what do you think jealous means? So, all right, so real quick. Say, oh, come on, man. <laughs> oh, I'm not going to lie. Pro presenter crew, we took a nail that time. All right, I ain't going to lie. We took a nail that time. All right, so jealousy, for the most part, from our perspective, oftentimes means a sort of, like, deranged, I want you to myself, and anything that guy can give you or that gal can give you that I can't give you, you shouldn't even want, right? Because I'm the only thing that you should have. There's like this toxic jealousy. And yet, jealous in this specific word in the Bible means fiercely protective and unaccepting of disloyalty. That God is fiercely protective. So when he says, don't have idols, don't make yourself that, why? Because I am fiercely protective and unaccepting of disloyalty. What an incredible way to describe a God that's saying, protect yourself and be careful. Because the idols of your world, whether it's thousands of years ago or whether it's in 21st century Austin today, will captivate your heart and will leave you hurting and empty and disappointed. And I'm saying that I don't want you to do that because I'm fiercely protective of you because I love you. Not because I'm just angry or, or disgruntled, but because I'm fiercely protective. I want what's best for you. I love you. I want to protect you. And I'm unaccepting of disloyalty. That's really powerful because it means that God looks at his people and says, I don't accept disloyalty from you. But it also means that God looks at himself and says, and I'm unaccepting of disloyalty from me. My character does not extend to demanding something from you that I wouldn't give to you myself. And therefore, when I expect loyalty from you, it's because you have a God who will be eternally loyal to you. That he's protective of you and that he'll stay with you forever and ever and ever and ever. That there will not be a moment that he falls away. There will not be a moment that he falters. And the story of the Bible, including this moment, is this incredible story of a God who says, despite that I've made people that constantly run from me, I'll constantly run after them. I'm a jealous God. Fiercely protective. I'm, I'm, I'm loyal. And my mercy and my grace always outweighs my anger. It's always greater than my anger. And so what happens in the midst of idolatry, God says, have this vision of me. Grow this vision of me. Grow this vision of me that so, as someone that longs for you, that's protective of you, that's, that's loyal to you. 
right, whose mercy is overwhelming and outweighs my anger. And so if you're disappointed and you go off and you, you participate in idolatry, in some way run back to me because my mercy is greater than my anger. And know that my, your disloyalty will never discredit my loyalty. It'll never cancel it out. I'm the God that you can always come back to. That's the vision of God that God invites us into. And so the, 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 the solution is not I have to figure out how to get away from the things that my heart goes after, what I put my hope in, what I put my pride in, or who I think God is. I have to get away from them, and I have to figure out something else. The vision for the second commandment is the solution to that is simply turning to him and building a great vision of him, seeing who he actually is and who he, who he invites us to see him as. And this is actually, I think, exactly what Jesus does in the New Testament. Like, there's such a powerful vision of Jesus in the New Testament because he perfectly embodies all of these things, right? When you think about how he's tempted by the devil in the wilderness, um, that this, there's this moment where he's taken to the very top of a mountain, and he said, and he's, he's told, man, all the kingdoms of the world are going to be yours. And, and Jesus resists that temptation. He doesn't place his hope in that idea. He's not saying, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah uh, I'll bow down to you. And it's actually in direct connection to this because he says, if you would just bow down to me in worship. And it's almost like he's taking the second commandment and go, hey, you know you're not supposed to bow down to anything, but would you bow down to me in exchange for something that can provide your heart hope? And Jesus goes, no, no, I'm, I'm good. Right, he, he resists the pride of Pharisees. Right, when Pharisees are out there creating this game of shame and guilt and they're bringing women that have, been caught in the act of adultery, while well, there's actually no men involved in this story um, that, are, that, are being, that are being brought to people and to be shamed, but they're throwing her in front of him. He's looking and resisting the urge to build a certain type of pride by going, hey, where are those who condemn you? I don't condemn you either. Get up, you're forgiven, go sin no more. He's resisting pride. He clings to God and displays the faithful love of, of someone who's devoted to God. Right, this is the perfect vision of what it looks like to live according to this commandment. Right, when we see the pride of individuals bearing down and hurting others, that we would step in and be a compassionate light and, and force in the midst of those arguments. That if you are the person that's sitting there and having a political argument and you're making it worse, it's not like what Jesus is doing at all. Right, he's bringing peace to situations and bringing redemption and restoration to people that feel hurt by things. And if you are, if you're if you're bowing down and this idea of physically bowing down, but, but emotionally saying, yeah, I'll give whatever I have to in order to be close to you, in order to gain what you're telling me to gain. That's not the vision of Jesus' life. And yet, despite that perfection, Jesus goes to the cross like an idolater so that we who are idolaters can be saved. That you're forgiven of idolatry. The thing is, I painted a picture right now that if you were anything like me, you should kind of be like, dang, I'm guilty of like all of these. And yet, the hope of, of that guilt is not found in changing our ways, but in turning to God, in being forgiven through the act of the, the perfect worshiping man who gives himself for the sake of idolaters, that we would gain a vision of God, not by going, okay, you're good, and I need to contrast it to that stuff that's bad, but taking a look at the cross and going, here's my vision. Here's who I'm worshiping. Here's who I'm following. Right? This man who's compassionate and loving and faithful. I'm going to set my eyes on him. I'm going to worship him. I'm going to follow him. And that's going to be the anchor to my heart as my heart tempts me into temptation, as my heart tempts me, sorry, into idolatry along the way. That's the vision that, 
that is presented in the second commandment. But I think more than anything, it's the vision that we're invited to when we see Jesus on the cross, when we see Jesus as our Savior, we see Jesus as our Redeemer. That's what we're invited into now, that God became flesh and dwelt among us. He displayed perfectly the heart and character of God, and now that's who we look to and go, he's my everything. I'll follow him. I'll set my eyes on him. I won't look away. Now, a couple of application points before we head out and before I pray. Man, I'm running. I'm running. I'm already done running out of time. And my five minutes of talking beforehand really got me. Came back to bite me. I'm never going to talk about it like that again. Um, so first application point, identify what your heart is going after. Identify what your heart's going after. You know, like, it, this isn't easy. It takes work. It was reasonable for me and my wife to look at our house situation and go, this seems like a reasonable thing to do. You know, like, until we start investigating more and realize, man, my heart is going after this house. This isn't just a wise decision. This is my heart trying to search for something that it feels like it needs in buying a house. That's what's happening. And so it takes work to identify what your heart's going after. Identify what your heart is going after, what your heart's longing for. The second one is this. Find where you're angry at God and confront it. Find where you're angry at God and confront it. Why am I saying that? Because more than likely where you're angry at God is the exact place you're saying, I would have done it different if I was you. And the more you run from that, the more you stick with the vision of God that looks just like you, and you never exchange it for the vision of God that looks like him. Just, just hold on to that. It just grows in bitterness, and you, you say, man, I wish God was more like this. But when you confront it, you're able, to, you're able to come to terms with who he is, and you're able to come to terms with what he longs for in you, what he desires in you. So, so find where you're angry at God and confront it. And then I say this pretty much every week, but I think it's really important. Learn God's will and heart and character. Like really, really learn him. Learn who he is, learn what he wants. Here's the thing, if your life consists of never investigating and seeing who God is, you do not have a vision of God when you pray to God. If you never spend any time opening your Bible, if you never spend any time going to small group, if you never spend any time trying to listen to a sermon, if you don't revisit maybe a sermon from here or listen to a sermon from somewhere else, if you're never giving yourself to learn who God is, when you stop and say, God, hey, in prayer, I promise you, you're not praying to God, you're praying to you. But the more we do this, the more we sit there and go, who are you? What do you want? What do you hope for? Man, in those moments, we begin to be equipped with the vision of God that anchors our hearts as we navigate through life and as we go to him in prayer and as we read the Bible and everything else. And so learn God's will and heart and character. And I think the first place that you should start if you feel uncomfortable or, 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 or kind of lost in doing that is open up Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and just read about Jesus. Just read about Jesus. If you don't read the Bible daily right now, start in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and just read about Jesus. And I promise you, you're going to catch a vision of who God is through him. My hope and prayer is that we can have a good and, and healthy vision of idolatry. That it's not just wrapped up in identity and acceptance, but that it starts to, starts to really open up and help us see this is about who God is. It's about worshiping God for who he is. It's about learning him and, and loving him and being loved by him and understanding how our life is anchored by that truth, not by anything else. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you so much uh, for the vision of you that we receive in the second commandment. That today, Father, we stand before you not as people who are perfectly faithful, that we're idolaters, that all of our hearts drift, that they drift to placing our hope in things, to placing our pride in things. They drift into having distorted visions of who you are. And yet in the midst of that, seeing those who are guilty of idolatry, you came to the world. That the image of God that we made in our own hearts was smashed by the image of God in Jesus Christ himself. As you came into the world to redeem and to save the world, not to curse the world, but to save the world. And that is now the vision we have of you. That we have biographies written about you, about what God looks like on earth conducting himself with men. That you corrected those who were trying to oppress, that you uplifted those who were discouraged. And ultimately, you gave your life so that sinners could be forgiven and brought into the family of a faithful God who is protective of us and who is committed to loyalty to us. Father, thank you. Help us cling to that vision in the midst of our lives, in the midst of a world and culture that tempts us to see value, significance, acceptance, pride, importance in so many things that are not you. And yet we're invited to take a look at the cross and say, there's what gives me what I need. There he is, dying for the guilty, uplifting and making a family for himself. Thank you. Help us to cling to you, to hold on to you, and to, to come back to that vision of you navigating through any of our bitterness, our anger, any, any of the effects that idolatry has, has had on us before, let us remember that through this verse, we're invited to come back to you, that that's the solution. Not fixing ourselves, but to come back to you, to catch that vision again and again. Thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name.